If no one sheds light on what is being done in the darkness, it will never stop. One in three girls and one in six boys are sexually abused and told to hush. Breaking the silence is the first step to healing. Healing is a lifelong journey. Find your voice. Your story matters. Pain put me into hiding. Purpose called me out. May the silence be broken. Thanks for listening to the One Voice Podcast. It's a safe place for conversation on relevant topics with real life stories to encourage and inspire you along life's journey of healing from sexual abuse. I'm Mary O'Brien and now Nicole Braddock Bromley. So glad to be back. The One Voice Podcast today with Mary Always. And also, we have a special guest today. I'm really excited um, to have her share her story and her family's journey with us. Um, if any of you have heard me talk, you know, on a stage at a college, at a conference or something, you know that I often talk about how many times when I'm speaking, um, survivors will come up to me and, and share, you know, that that they did have the courage to tell. And many of them then share the secondary trauma that they received when someone like their mother, their father, their grandparent, or the person that they trusted with their story didn't believe them. They had a parent who um, made them feel like it was their fault, made them feel like they needed to be silenced. And in fact, that's why I titled my first book, Hush, is because so often survivors are told that they should be quiet and shouldn't talk about what they've gone through. And so that's always been such a hard thing for me, um, just as I continue to be an advocate for survivors, um, just to know the number of people out there that aren't responding appropriately. And that hurts my heart so much. But on the other hand, I've had so many parents reach out to me over email and our guest actually is one of them, a mom who did believe, a mom who did everything she could to fight for justice for their child, a mom who wanted to support and believe in their child and do, you know, whatever possible to help her along her healing journey. And so just really grateful for Laura Evans, who's joining us today. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Nicole. I'm, I'm such a fan of your podcast and your work and your books just really helped breathe life into me and my daughter and um, even some others that I've shared your books with. So thank you for what you're bold and speaking into. Hmm, that's really cool. Thank you, Laura. Well, would you mind just uh, maybe starting kind of from the beginning and fresh and share some of your story and just kind of what you've gone through with your daughter? And then we'll, we'll kind of ask you some questions for there. But give us a little bit um, just of where you're coming from and, and basically what you shared with me the first time you reached out over email. Sure. So I'm the mom of a sexually abused child. And um, we have uh, a blended family of four children. Um, my husband has um, our oldest daughter and I have three children that I brought into our marriage. And um, we've got uh, just a, like a, I would say an average family, you know, we, um, we love and support one another. Um, we, we work, um, we play together. Uh, and it was a, uh, it was a few years ago that um, my daughter's friend came to me uh, my daughter was 17, a senior in high school at the time, and my daughter's friend had the courage to come to me and say that my daughter had a suicide plan, um, that she was deeply troubled and had a suicide plan. Mm. And even though it cost that friend her friendship, 
temporarily, she was courageous and bold enough to come and let us know. And um, that is a prayer that I have for a lot of uh, young people out there. Many times they do know, but they don't know what to do. And I'm glad that she came to me. So we, we uh, confronted my daughter with um, that right away. And uh, she just broke down. And uh, that day she broke down at school um, and confided into the guidance counselor and the nurse at the school that she had been sexually abused um, by um, a former neighbor of ours, um, her, one of her best friends, her childhood friend's father, her stepfather. And uh, that was the first that we had heard about this. Um, he was the most popular dad in the neighborhood. The kids were always hanging out at his house. Um, our daughter never spent the night there at anybody's house. She didn't stay away from us. Um, she didn't want to stay away and, you know, it kind of wasn't something we encouraged. So I, that was, it was a real shock to us. Um, we went on a journey of just my focus, our solid focus was her healing and her will to live. And that was the only thing that I could see and that I cared about was, mm -hmm. um, you know, God had given her life and I wanted her to have the will to live. So we immediately pursued what treatment options were available. And there's not much, there's not much available when you're, when your child is, um, you know, seriously uh, having, you know, a, a mental breakdown and yeah, there's not much available because she had developed an eating disorder and uh, we were able to get her in an outpatient center for her eating disorder. And the psychiatrists that worked with her there were able to determine that really it was, uh, it was post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD from the abuse, mm -hmm. more than a body image issue that was causing her eating disorder. So they recommended the next steps for us for a residential treatment center, which we were not able to get her into. Um, so we continued with uh, looking for treatment and looking for therapy. And, and anyway, we went through years of treatment with her and she began to do much better. And she chose to prosecute her abusers and we um, completed that um, prosecution, I guess, um, about a year ago. And um, she's doing super well now. And we're really thankful for that and, and thankful, for, um, thankful for how God showed up during the process. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, I think one part of your story that was very interesting to me and I think can be insightful for a lot of others who are walking in your shoes is just the the process you went through for justice. Could you kind of unpack a little bit of that? I know it was such a long, long journey and it is for so many who take that huge step to, you know, fight for justice and, and stop abusers. You know, one, would you do it again knowing how long it was? Um, and also just what were some of those steps that you think would be helpful for, you know, maybe some listeners who are considering going through that process? Yes, I absolutely would do it again and uh, support my daughter's choice in, in doing that. It was, uh, I want to say, a lot of people ask us, you know, did you guys prosecute to get revenge or, and that's not it at all. It was never about People revenge. ask you that? Yes. <laughs> people yes. ask the stupidest people. questions. Just so insensitive. I know. 
I think yeah, we need to do a podcast on what not to ask. <laughs> exactly. My goodness. I'm yeah. so over it. Yeah. People oh. ask us that because yeah. I believe there's such a stigma around this. And it's why I want to be bold about being a parent of a sexually mm. abused child. Because, <laughs> I mean, it's not what I ever wanted to happen, of course. Um, right. And I feel to some extent you know, as a parent, you cannot help but feel responsible and, 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 you know, wanting to protect your children. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, not enough parents are talking about it. And this is so pervasive and so pervasive with people that our children know and that yeah. we trust with our children. Yeah. And uh, we just, we just have to do better as adults. We just have to do better. It's not mm. okay that we are not educated about it and that we're not talking about it as uncomfortable as it is. We have to do better and yeah. uh, for the sake of our children. Absolutely. And so, um, so yeah, the decision to prosecute was our daughter's decision. And it was because the family had a newborn baby girl during mm. the height of the abuse happening. Oh wow! And so, um, and so, our daughter was very aware of that little girl growing up in an abusive home, mm -hmm. and she was approaching the age that our daughter's grooming had begun. Okay. And so, our daughter felt just a sense of responsibility. She's yeah. a warrior, and she's a hero. I'd she say. Goes yeah, she chose to say, this is not okay. And as hard as it may be, and I don't know what the outcome's going to be. And, you know, I don't know if the police are going to believe me and I don't know, you know, what it's going to turn into, but I have to say something and I have to do something to protect her. Yeah. And that's what she did. She's so brave and, you know, and, and selfless honestly, to be able to step out of her own story. And because it's so easy to just, you know, bury it for yourself and just hope that you were the only victim. But we know that hardly ever, ever, ever are we the only victim that these perpetrators, these abusers will go on to abuse many, many other children. And for her to say, I think you said she was about eight years old when the grooming happened, but her abuse happened between 10 and 14. Um, that this little girl that was in the home was approaching eight years old and that your daughter saw that, recognized that and was willing to not just bury her story, but to say, you know, this isn't going to happen again. Like that is so brave and so bold. And I just respect her so much for that. And you as well to just to walk alongside her in that very painful process. But you know, that you say you would do it again. That that's amazing. So go ahead. Your next steps then you, you couldn't go to the police, correct? Right. The police had been called to the school when our daughter first had her breakdown at school. And uh, so it was on record and a detective had contacted us at that time. But all we cared about was our daughter's will to live. And that was not the right time for us to try to figure the rest of this out. Um, we just wanted her to get well and for it to be her decision when she was well of how to handle. So she, um, she, we, we were not able to go into the um, police off, you know, police headquarters with her um, for the forensic interview or the child advocacy center uh, because they did not want it to later come up that we had been with her and maybe we influenced what she was saying. Yeah. So uh, as hard as that was, 
it's it's something you have to respect because um, because we don't we wanted to get a clean case like we didn't want a case that would in any way have an appeal or a case that we that she could be discredited so um, she knew that she knew she'd have to go in on her own and we were able to drop her off pick her up love on her um, but she had to face it on her own and that again just how much courage that has to take and a real willingness to stick it out you know that that's so that's so hard and there were other children who who she knew were abused by this man yeah several in the neighborhood um that mm-hmm. were abused his his stepdaughter which was my daughter's you know best childhood friend and uh his stepson and other children in the neighborhood uh were abused by him and uh she you know listed all of them in the police record and the police we didn't know a lot of how this worked until after the fact which is why i like to share it because i want people it, knowledge is power and if you understand and can um, prepare your mind for what to expect i think it may go a little bit easier or smoother yeah, yeah we, i would love for you to share some of that stuff i think that's this is something that people don't know and they don't know where to even ask so a lot of times you know mothers and, and, and children who've been abused are going through this thing just with blindfolds on and just, you know, them and God. And that's all great. But if we have people like you that have walked through this to kind of give some ideas, like that's, that's just gold. Thank you for this. Yes, yes. So children's advocacy centers are um, all around the country. And many times, even if it's, my daughter was uh, 17 when she went and reported this to the police and the children's advocacy center. So it's not limited to small children, um, but it's there dealing with sexual abuse and and abuse um, that children experience. And they are so well trained and experienced and kind and supportive in the process. Um, But yeah, so when she went to the police to report it and the Children's Advocacy Center got involved and the police scheduled her an appointment at the Children's Advocacy Center for a forensic interview. Mm -hmm. And this is where like a psychologist comes in and does a more thorough interview. And these interviews are all recorded. And um, for details and for specific information and daughter you know named the other children that she was aware of that had been abused because what the police look for is some type of corroboration for an arrest okay and um you know none of this was orchestrated ahead of time because um this family had moved out of the neighborhood at the time so she really was not in much contact with them and they weren't aware of what she'd been going through so we didn't know, but immediately after we left, the police did reach out to the other children and ask to talk to them about the complaint that our daughter had filed. And, uh, and I will say, just to be you know, upfront about it, our children's names are not protected in this process. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the accuser has the right to know who's accused them. And that's even if it's a child accuses them. And uh, that's another topic for another story. But, um, but our children, you know, they, they're, they're known that they're the ones accusing. And yeah. so um, that was hard for me. But they, uh, 
So anyway, they reached out and none of the other children would come forward except for the stepson. Um, this, the abuser's stepson, who was 19 at the time, he did come forward and he corroborated my daughter's story. We wow. had no idea that that was going on. Like we mm. didn't know what the process was. We didn't know that was going on. Um, we didn't, we weren't in conversation with him. Um, so after, so within basically 24 hours, my daughter and this young man had given the, a similar story and um, the police acted immediately and arrested the abuser, uh, mm -hmm. confiscated things from their um, house and um, arrested him and took it very seriously, which I'm super thankful for. Yeah. We still didn't know because it didn't show up on the news or anything. We just didn't know. And the police are so busy. It's hard to hear back from them sometimes. Mm -hmm. So um, it was about a week later before we found out that that they had that he had been arrested and um it was much wow. later than that that we learned who the corroborating witness was for for my daughter mm. so so yeah so he was arrested and when he was arrested um obviously put in jail with a bond uh and his mother bailed him out and um and shortly after that, the police also had interviewed my daughter a second time for the arrest of this, the, the main perpetrator's first cousin. He had trafficked my daughter and his daughter to other men. And, um, and this is in like a suburban upscale neighborhood. And, sure. and, you know, I just think people don't think this happens. I didn't think this kind of thing happened and mm -hmm. it was happening, mm -hmm. you know, right under our nose. The only one that, that we knew to prosecute was, um, his first cousin. And so my daughter, um, um because your daughter and, had named him, she had remembered yeah. him as being part of the trafficking happening. Right. Okay. She mm -hmm. knew who he was and he was, um, he was frequent in this whole process. Um, mm -hmm. You know, he was, he was, uh, it was, it was frequent enough that she was very familiar with, mm -hmm. with him, what kind of car he drove, where he lived, all those kind of details. So he was arrested and uh, he confiscated his phone and, and cameras and stuff. And then he was also bailed out by a family member um, uh, shortly um, by his girlfriend. Actually, he was bailed out. And so we thought First, we thought, well, the arrest has happened. They're off the street. You know, we're going to pursue justice and, and, and this is going to stop. And when they bonded out and were free, we were like, well, wait, what? I mean, how is that even possible? Right. Um, because because we thought that the bond amount was set, you know, fairly high and, um, and the detectives had encouraged us that it's not likely that they'll post bond, but, you know, they did. And, wow. um, mm -hmm. Um, and so then we thought, okay, well, you know, are we going to trial within, um, you know, a few weeks or a month or a couple of months or what? And uh, that is not the case at all. It was mm. um, three years between the time of the arrest and when we went to trial. Oh. A thousand oh. days. Oh, um, goodness, Laura. And it, yeah, it was tough. And not all the time is it that way, but it was that way. It was that long of time for God to work and mm. God's timing is perfect timing and in hindsight you can see these things but when you're living through it you just got to walk by faith and, and absolutely and you're talking about some of your daughter's most crucial years of her life you know oh, graduating yeah. high school college age you know 
teen, late teenage years becoming an adult, like that's a lot to be going through those three years of her life. Yeah, the hardest part for her was her friend, uh, the stepdaughter, um, she, she would not come forward. And some of the other children really resented my daughter for coming forward. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there was, there was, you know, some, some just negative comments and discussions over text and social media. And she had to, and it was recommended to us and we understood it from a legal process. She had to really remove herself from all contact from them. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had um, other children in the home other than that, the stepson. Yeah, the stepson came forward and corroborated the story, but the other children that my daughter named and that the stepson named, um, like the stepson's sister, which was my daughter's friend, and other children in the neighborhood, they would not come forward at okay. all. The and so she, she kind of had to cut off contact then from them. Yeah. And, and this and was that, her friend. Right. That was so painful for her because she knew in her heart she was doing the right thing to protect the youngest child at home. But, but it really hurt her to feel the anger and the resentment because it was very painful and disruptive to their life too. When the police showed up at their home with no warning and it was just all kinds of craziness and madness. And um, that was very disruptful and painful. And Mm -hmm. what also happened around this time, within a few weeks of um, the arrest being made and the men bonding out and being free, the stepson who had corroborated my daughter's um, story was a second listed as police witness on the accusation, um, mysteriously died. And mm-hmm. on my daughter's birthday, oh. um, which we felt was a clear sign and signal of intimidation and retaliation, um, but nothing could be proved on that. And um, so, it was a very painful time for, for all families involved um, and a scary time uh, as well. Absolutely. And, and, and yet time dragged on. Time dragged yeah. on and we would have a court date set. The district attorney's office, you know, we went through the um, indictment proceeding and we did not have to appear at that, which was mm-hmm. uh, fortunate. And so the jury, the grand jury determined that there was enough evidence to um, convict. And so the district attorney's office got the case. And I would say, you know, it probably took almost a year for that to happen. Um, and it took a year for the police office to go through the computers and all of the um, technology assets that they had collected from the from the abuser's home, which had tons of child pornography evidence on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it took them a year just because they're so backed up because these cases are so prevalent, which yeah. is heartbreaking. Right. Um, and shocking. I mean, you see it happen within an hour on TV, like the total thing, and you think that things move faster, and they don't move faster. Um, but but justice does move, and and then they kept adding more charges and adding more charges to his you know file and his record, mm-hmm. uh, and so you know we were headed into a trial with the district attorney, and then it got uh, delayed. Um, and it gets delayed for several different reasons. Yeah, please feel free to unpack 
any of that. And I mean, that's just, it's such a process. And I just keep reminding myself as I'm hearing this, this, the depth of this, you know, because for me, it was my stepfather took his life and that was over. All of this whole process that I was looking at, like a mountain in front of me was just removed. Um, but you had to keep walking it out. So I'm just so grateful in the back of my mind as I'm hearing this, that you said it was worth it. So like, keep, keep going. So, so when, so, so what happens with the trial process is they, it's almost like overbooking a flight or overbooking a hotel. Mm -hmm. The courtrooms are overbooked in terms of cases that they can handle. And so um, every, I didn't know that. I had no idea that sort of thing happened. Um, But now I do. So, so (laughs) now you're an expert. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So let's say that, you know, they can handle eight cases, but they have 12 on the docket for pretrial to be determined which are the eight of the 12 that they're going to take. And the kind of factors that get involved is obviously uh, capital murder is um, considered a higher priority. Um, If the person that's being accused is already in jail, that's considered a higher priority. Um, Those sort of factors come into play. And, uh, and if the accused person um, feels that they need better representation, they can change attorneys several different times. Like there's no limit on how many times they can change attorneys. The limit is that at the judge's discretion of after so many times of getting tired of hearing them change attorneys, they can basically say, okay, this is it. I'm not falling for this again. Mm-hmm. And you know, when we went through it, I thought, oh my goodness, you know, everything is stacked in his favor and he's, he's the abuser. And, yeah. and as a victim and a victim's yeah. family, you know, we, we're, you know, we're having to go through all the pain mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. he gets all the gain because he's free and he's just, you know, oh, I'm going to postpone it. Oh, I'm going to get a new lawyer. Oh, I'm going to postpone it. In hindsight, what I learned is the reason that that freedom is given to someone that's been um, accused is to to be sure that when it comes time for a conviction there's less appellate process you know there's no like you can't appeal saying i didn't get to pick my attorney well you picked three different attorneys and you went through you know three different ones over the course of three years so you know that's not going to hold water that you didn't get fair legal counsel because you were in charge of it and you changed it several times um so that I didn't understand until you look back on it. Mm-hmm. The other thing that happened as we were, you know, on again and off again, and it was pretty much every six months, every six months, we're going to trial, wow. get ready for trial, block the times on your calendar, you know, <sighs> be ready for pre-trial mm-hmm. uh, and, and be ready for it. And of course, this was an emotional roller coaster, especially for my daughter. Um, it, it brought a lot of anxiety, um, a lot of fear, you know, and, um, you know, just, you know, I just remember one time she was working a job at a, um, office max or something. And she thought that one of the abusers had walked in. Now, remember they knew that she was the accuser because that's allowed. And she knew what had happened to the corroborating witness. So, um, you know, she just, fell in a puddle. She just couldn't handle it. And um, um, it was just super, super stressful for her. A lot of anxiety for her. 
but she's amazingly strong. And, uh, and, you know, we surrounded her with love and with prayers and with encouragement um, and support just all along the way. So what also happened during this time that is God moving in ways that we couldn't control and dictate was um, attorneys changed, like district attorneys changed and, um, and the other children became more willing to come forward. Oh, the wow. time given them the, the, the time to heal and the time to realize that the abuse that they knew was normal was not normal because uh, my daughter's friend who had been abused, she was being abused by this man up until the day he was arrested. Oh my. And, wow. um, and, and so, so, you know, that's why I say that in hindsight, it, it really, it really was for the good that it was delayed because it gave time for strength in numbers. And um, wow. That's really powerful to think about that. Like it was your daughter and yourself that were willing to basically rip open the curtains, you know, but then it took so much more time for other people to see what you saw, to know what you knew and to even be able to um, label what they were going through as abuse also. But you had mm-hmm. to be willing to sit back and be patient with that process to see, you know, God moving for the curtains to be lifted over their eyes. Like, wow, that is a really powerful, powerful statement you just made. And I want to say that patient is what it may have looked like and not what it felt like. Yeah, I'm I, sure. uh, I cried out to God. I mean, the Psalms, the book of Psalms never became so real to me as to when I was pleading her case to him. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember I walked in circles. I, I mean, for, for years, I would walk seven circles around houses, around yards. Um, when we actually did go to trial, I could not walk seven times around the courthouse because I'd be arrested, but I walked around our hotel seven times Mm -hmm. and, um, um, and God showed up. I mean, he, he is a God of restoration and redemption and, uh, and, you know, darkness does not live where light is. And he protected us in a, in, in such a wonderful way. And also, um, provided uh, for for justice to happen. Right. Wow. That is very interesting. The the number seven, I'm thinking back to even in my own story and you've read, you know, my books, you know, the power of my mom's belief in my story and um, her compassion on me and willing to support me. But prior to my disclosure, Laura, um, we lived on seven acres with my stepfather who had sexually abused me my whole childhood. And my mom was the one that started to really wonder if something was going on, if something was wrong, what was bothering me. And before I had disclosed, she used to talk about she would walk around our seven acre lot just for hours, just praying and talking to God and just trying to figure out what this darkness was in our home. That's very interesting and that that God eventually kind of like compelled her through all of that walking of those seven acres to finally just ask me the question, you know, what what's going on? Are you okay? And has he ever touched you? So that's very 
that's just very interesting that the comparison there with you and your walks too. I think that, you know, God really does meet us when we take that time, um, to spend with him alone. I think even often in nature, that's the same way for me that, you know, he can, he can bring us, like you said, what we need to get through this mountain that's before us, but also to just to kind of clear the way in our own mindset of, um, you know, what might be going on and what, what does he have for me next? So that's just really cool. So my role, it was supporting my daughter. I was her advocate. I was the one calling the detectives, calling the district attorney's office. Mm. I did not wait to get an update. I was proactive and, and, and chasing it down. And, and they knew who I was and they knew uh, who she was and they knew how important this was to me. And I, I didn't let them forget it. But at the same time, I, I believed that the process you know would happen yeah so and it did it did and did uh, your daughter know about like all of these steps how proactive you were was she kind of like mom do whatever you need to do I don't want to know about it was she like mom will you please make these phone calls for me was she like mom can you please step back <laughs> like what was your daughter communicating to you um, with all of that she you know she was struggling during this time mm-hmm. it was you know from a mental wellness perspective, it was, it was very tough on her. So he did not, uh, I would tell her when I called so-and-so and and I found this out and this Uh is what's next. Um, If I thought it was helpful, if it was information that wasn't helpful and was discouraging, I didn't bring it up. Um, But I took the initiative because Mm -hmm. I felt so guilty that this had happened under my watch with my Mm -hmm. child. And and her friends who I also knew. And but I, Laura, so- that is so, I will tell you that that's so different from most of the stories I hear. I'm oftentimes I'm hearing, you know, a mom who feels so guilty, but then that's when she meets her daughter with disbelief, with denial, mm-hmm. with too many questions about her story that she doesn't need to be asking her daughter that's triggering her daughter. You know, it's often these other kinds of responses. You responded in this way, as you said, it was through feeling of the guilt and all of that, but like your response is so what these survivors need. I'm so grateful that you respond that way, but why is it that most of the moms that I hear about don't are not able to turn it into something proactive and compassionate and validating. Why is it always the opposite? Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? So often it is hurtful to the daughter. (laughs) Yeah, I do. And I hear that too, you know, with our blog and our, our work that I'm doing, I hear that too often. And I'm so heartbroken by it. And, And I, I, you know, one, what you touched on is so important for folks to know. I did not delve into asking questions. You know, we got her mm-hmm. a good therapist that she picked out. And, and I encourage people, don't, don't give up if your child has gone through this and they go to a therapist or a psychiatrist that they don't like. You find one to, that they like. You don't give up because it's so important that they have someone who's a professional that they can communicate and they can talk with. So we didn't give up. She went through like 10 different therapists and probably 15 or 20 different psychiatrists before she found the ones that clicked with her and that she felt comfortable confiding in and talking with. Um, and I knew that was not my role. So what is my role? 
Well, my role is to protect her. And part of protecting her means that I'm not going to badger her with questions that she doesn't want to talk about and make her relive something that she would rather, you know, move past. And that's so important how parents, you know, should show up in these situations versus how they often show up. Uh, is their own perhaps survival instinct kicking in? Uh, but like I, you know, feel so strongly about as adults and as parents, we have to do better than that. We're responsible mm-hmm. for protecting our children. When That's our right. children share with us that something like this has happened, our responsibility needs to kick in, not our Uh, not our need for knowledge. You know, I did not, I resisted the desire to want to know more details. And the only reason that a parent, I think, would want to know more details is because that knowledge of the details would have, would have satisfied my concern of how did I miss this? What happened and where did it happen and when did it happen and how did it happen? Because I obviously missed it and I can't reconcile how did I miss this? How did I miss this for so long? Uh So I think that that curiosity that parents have is is quite honestly self-preservation. Yeah, they're trying to they're trying to soothe their own feelings about it. And hey, I get it. But at the end of the day, I looked at it as what I feel does not matter. What she feels matters now. And I will not lose my child. I will not lose my daughter. This may have happened to her but she will not walk this alone. I will be there for her and I will do what she cannot do. I mean, she's a teenager. She could not contact the police and the detective and the district attorneys. And, you know, she did not know how to maneuver that world. And, right. and I didn't want her to. All I wanted her to do was to choose to live and to choose to fight for her life and to take good care of herself, to self-care, so that she could make it through this process that we were going through. And mm-hmm. I saw it as my responsibility as the adult to clear the way for her and to let those authorities know and to let the district attorney know there's somebody out there that that is fighting for this case and fighting for justice and it's not going to be forgotten mm-hmm. and 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 to find out what do we need to do do we need to hire an attorney do i need to hire a security guard to protect my daughter after what had happened yeah. you know that was the kind of things that that kicked in for me of you know what do i need to do and how do i show up to to help her Absolutely. I think it's even important if it's an adult survivor who's coming forward, you know, just remembering the thing that happened or, or that it was an adult um, rape victim that even as an adult, we still need somebody to fight for us and to be our voice while we're trying to navigate, you know, healing and PTSD and all the things um, just to, to have someone like you, a mother, even if you're of an adult child to be able to stand in the gap and say, you're not alone. Like how important that is. That's, that's really, really awesome. So glad she had you. So, so she has other witnesses now coming forward. Um, and you're continuing to go right through, through, through these trials because of the cousin that was still involved in the abuse and the trafficking. 
Right. So we had both of them had been arrested and been bonded out. And both of them were in the same sort of trial cycle. Okay. Um, you know, every six months we're going to trial with both of them separately. The district attorney had determined that it would be better to not try them together, but to try them separately right. okay. because there was a distinction between the charges. So we went through that, you know, process of that determination. And then uh, we finally, you know, about a thousand days into it, we uh, were ready for trial of the primary main abuser. Okay. And um, just to set it up so people know what, what to expect, our uh, county uh, Children's Advocacy Center held a, a night in court for kids, which is a wonderful program where it's wonderful and heartbreaking at the same time. It is specifically for sexually abused children that are facing their abuser in court. Um, so it ranges from age like four to at this time, my daughter was 20. And um, we went into, they basically make it a pizza party that night to make the kids have a favorable association with going to the courthouse that this yeah. is where we went for the pizza party. Um, and like I said, it's heartbreaking, but it was so beneficial for us at the same time because you go into the courtroom, the parents and the kids, and they have like a mock trial set up. So they have jurors in the jury stand, they have a judge, they have um, a bailiff, they have somebody that's acting as the defense attorney and the prosecutor, and they just sort of explain to you what each person's role is. And they really strongly explain how the judge is able to keep an eye on the accused, um, on the defendant, and how the defendant is sitting next to the bailiff and that the, the uh, there's, a, there's a jail cell right on the other side of that door. Mm -hmm. So that the, you know, whatever, if they give you a mean look, if they say anything, they're gonna be yanked out of there and that everybody in this courtroom is there to protect you, the witness. Um, and that was, I didn't know that kind of thing. I mean, God bless the, the individuals that dedicate their life to this kind of service and support. Um, yeah. It was so helpful. And they had each child come upon the witness stand and they had them answer some basic questions like, what's your favorite color? Are you sure that's your favorite color? Um, you know, where do you go to school? Uh, when, you know, what, you know, what, what did you wear to school today? Or, you know, whatever. Um, the kind, you know, it was simple questions, but it was, um, it was a cross-examination as well, just so that they were comfortable in knowing the reason that this guy is doing, or this woman, the reason that this person is cross-examining you is so that the acute the accused person gets a fair trial and so they can't come back later and claim that they didn't get a fair trial mm -hmm. so they're just asking for clarification they're not they're not challenging you. They're not doubting what you're saying. They're just asking the question from a different way. And yeah. you just tell the truth. Tell Damn, the that truth. is such a really important thing. I, I don't know of any other place I've heard of doing this. I'm sure it's out there, but that, that yeah. is really important. It's super helpful, super important. So, so she then went through this, your daughter went yeah. to this? That's so cool. Yes, we went with her. We were able to go with her. Um, she went through it. We met other parents and other children, not of our case, um, but of other cases um, that were there. And, um, and so then it was a few weeks after that that we had our pre-trial prep. 
which is where you meet with the district attorney and you go through your story again and they sort of rehearse their prosecute their what do you call it their litigation their their okay. you know their opening arguments and those mm -hmm. kind of things they rehearse the facts with you just to be sure that they've got everything right and to be sure they know what you're going to say yeah so um and I was one of the witnesses too, but mainly a fact witness. Um, so we went through that. And again, all along, we had totally separated ourselves from that family. Um, my daughter's, you know, childhood friend, um, um, her mother, who her mother um, was not aware that the abuse was happening either. Um, and, you know, we had just separated ourselves from them, which was, which was difficult, but we knew that we needed to do it so that no one could accuse us of like uh, working together, like yeah. that we were trying to co-conspirate something, yeah. um, which is actually what they tried to accuse us of. But thankfully, mm. because of our isolation from one another, they, they were not able to be effective mm. with that. Okay. Um, so we, uh, I want to share an important thing that my daughter did, and I'm so proud of her for many things, but she, in her therapy, which had been so helpful for her, she had the wherewithal to say, when we were for sure going to trial and we were at the pre-trial week, she said, I really want, I asked her, do you want to stay at a hotel or do you want, where do you want to stay for this? Mm -hmm. Do you want to stay at home? Or she had her own apartment at the time. Do you want to stay at your apartment? And she said, no, I really want to stay somewhere else. I want to stay at a hotel. You guys stay at a hotel with me because I don't want to bring these memories that I'm about to walk through back to my safe place, my mm -hmm. apartment, my place that's been nice for me. Sure. Um, and I thought I, I thought that was super wise on yeah, her part. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so so we go through the pretrial. We get ready for the first day of trial, which was jury selection. And we did not have to appear in court that day. Um, but the defendant, I guess, gets to appear in court as the lawyers are choosing the jurors. We got a call first thing that morning and we thought, you know, my husband and I thought, why are we getting a call? We're not supposed to be there. Mm. And the district attorney said to us, um, we need you to come to the courthouse um, as soon as you can. How soon can you be here? And we said, well, you know, at that time we were actually a couple hours away because we'd taken our daughter out of town for the weekend to get her mind off things. And we drove back. And that was the longest drive of our life because we had no idea what was going on. And yeah. we asked and he said, I can't tell you over the phone. I need to talk to you in person. Mm -hmm. So for a moment, I thought, oh, is this going to be delayed again? I mean, seriously, after <laughs> so many delays and everything we've been through, is this what we're going through again? Well, when we got there, the district attorney had the... Um, foresight about him to have coordinated with our daughter's therapist and had asked the therapist to meet us there. Mm. Um, she was also one of the um, fact witnesses in the case because of how much my daughter had revealed to her. Mm -hmm. And the, um, well, we found out that the, um, the primary abuser had committed suicide that morning, the first day of trial. Wow. And um, immediately our concern was, you know, how, how is, I mean, I, the first words that came out of my mouth, I knew he had killed himself at his mother's apartment. He was staying with his mother. And my first words were, you know, how is his mother? Because I mean, as a mother, I just can't imagine, you know, that that's what she found. That's what she woke up to that day. And my daughter 
oh, the anger that my daughter felt. I mean, yeah. it was so, and Nicole, you must know what that's like. I mean, she just yeah. felt so angry that she was robbed of Absolutely. the ability to have someone agree that he was wrong in what he did and that he would pay for it. And that he got to manipulate the situation and control it to yep. the very to end. To the very <laughs> end. Yep. Yes. Is exactly what he always told her he would yep. do that he, yep. would, he would never you know, no one would ever throw him in jail for it he would never get in trouble for it no one would ever believe her you know she she would be the fool and that he would never you know it was her fault and all the things yeah. that these monsters manipulate the children yeah. with and um, then as the, and as their victim hearing that it, it almost feels like their last words were i told you so Oh that's yeah. So infuriating. Oh, and that was so hard. I mean, we um you know, of course I said what what anyone would say and I said to her, you know, he faced his judgment. He did not go without facing judgment in this. Mm -hmm. um, but my heart was so broken for her because she was so angry and so, so frustrated. And, you know, what's the point of everything that she had gone through for, for years. And even though he would never hurt another child again, which was, you know, redeeming for us, um, that was not what she wanted to ever have happen. She wanted him to face justice for what he did. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, that was really a very difficult, difficult time. But what was worse was his mother went crazy. She attacked and started bullying my daughter and the other children on social media, just mm. free reign, accusing them of lying and blaming them for her son's death all oh. over social media. Mm. And, um, I, I don't know what part of, of what we walked through in the trial process was worse, but this was definitely one of it. And uh, it was awful. I mean, and, and you know, I'm going to say this, social media companies, Facebook, Instagram, they did nothing to protect these children. Mm -hmm. Nothing. Yeah. They could see, we reported, we had hundreds of people reporting the post as being um, vicious and bullying and yeah. inappropriate and mean. I mean, she was posting, I know your address and karma's going to come get you. I mean, it was oh. threatening. It was, oh. it was awful. And she was naming them in it because, you know, in the court process, their names are out there. They're not protected. Mm -hmm. They're not hidden. They're out there. So, um, I know she was going through pain and I actually had even contributed to her GoFundMe account for his funeral because oh, wow. I, I felt like I couldn't imagine the pain of a mother losing a child, no matter what the circumstances yeah. were. Um, mm -hmm. so we went to the district attorneys again. I mean, my daughter was, you know, hanging on by an edge and, um, God's grace and mercy. Um, but I was pretty fired up and went, uh, to the district attorneys, went to the detective's office and demanded something had to be done. And, and, you know, all of this time we had been really demonstrating restraint, <laughs> not taking anything into our own hands. And I contacted attorneys, um, for 
for, for what kind of lawsuit could I slap her with or what could I do to just shut her up was yeah. all I was trying to do. Um, because even though, you know, Facebook would say, well, you know, just tell the kids to block her. Well, that doesn't solve the problem. The problem yeah. that the kids have is what she's saying publicly to everybody else. Mm. It's not that they connect with her. And she was private messaging the kids and accusing them. And um, so finally, the detective and the district attorney's office were able to arrest her as a third degree felony for um, for, um, let me think of what they called it for retaliation against state's witness, oh, wow. a third degree felony for retaliation against state's witness. And the only reason that that was able to happen is because the first cousin's trial was coming up and hadn't happened already. Okay. Had there not been a first cousin's trial or had that mm. trial not happened, she would have been able to unleash terror forever against these kids. Interesting. Um, but because they were state's witnesses against the first cousin and that trial was coming up within three weeks of when the other trial was, um, she, she got herself arrested for that behavior. And silenced from there forward, right? Yes. Good. Is, yes. Absolutely, which thankfully, but what it also meant, and again, this is kind of, I feel God's fingerprints showing up, her bad behavior at that time also meant she could have no contact ever with these children again in any way, shape, or form, written, verbal, and she could not show up to the trial of her nephew. And had she been able to show up in person at the trial, it would have been all about her because yeah. that's what all of her posts were about anyway, was all about her and, <laughs> yeah. um, and not caring about what had happened to the kids. So it was basically a restraining order for the rest of her life, right? Yes. Wow. That's right. That's great. That's right. So, um, so we went into the trial against, so a three, few weeks later, we went into the trial against um, the first cousin. Mm -hmm. And um, um, we went through the same thing. We didn't have to go to the kids' night in court again, but we went through the pretrial process, and um, and then we went to trial. And it was a one-week trial, and they have a safe place in most courthouses, I, I expect, and certainly in ours, it was called a victim's assistance area that is kind of hidden in the basement area of mm -hmm. the courthouse. Mm -hmm. And it's protected with guards and security locks and all kinds of things. You know, you just can't walk up and walk into it where it's like a living room when you get inside of it. And mm -hmm. um, there's a TV and there's games and there's puzzles and there's food. And, you know, it's, it's a place to, relax if there's such a thing um, because as victims and as uh, people that were testifying we could not be in the courtroom during the hearing which I didn't know that was going to happen that way either um, yeah. but um, we we have to be sequestered so that we're not influenced by whatever has been said that mm -hmm. what we're sharing is you know separate from anything that's happened in the court room prior to us sharing so um and we had a change of clothes we were able to just be like comfy and then have a change of nice clothes to go into the courtroom and uh, again you know thankfully the case proceeded very quickly um the girls um, my daughter and her friend who we were able to spend time with really for for um one of the first times since everything had happened and her mother um uh, we were all able to spend time there in the victims area together and kind of love on each other and support each other mm -hmm. um 
And, and so we, you know, went through, you know, one witness after another being called up to the room and then coming back. Oh, and one of the other things I want to say is this particular courtroom had a, a therapy dog. Mm -hmm. uh, Winston was our therapy dog and he was a joy and delight. Um, to come back from all of that ugliness and be able to just play fetch with him and pet him and uh, feed him treats was just so comforting and distracting in a really positive way. I hope all courthouses do that for victims. And yeah. um, um, that was wonderful. Good so old we Winston. Mm-hmm. Winston. <laughs> so we continue to send Winston gifts to this day. So, oh, um, that's precious. So... So we went through the trial and, um, you know, it took about a week and they, you know, had the witnesses on our side and the witnesses on his side and his testimony and he denied everything. Mm. And uh, then, you know, the, he had chosen a jury trial, which again, the accuser gets to choose. Um, and by the way, both of these gentlemen had been offered, um, well, gentlemen, I don't feel comfortable not, using both yeah. of these men. Not yeah. so gentle. <laughs> Sorry. Men. <laughs> no, I do not feel comfortable using that word. Both of these men mm -hmm. have been offered a um, plea bargain. Several times they've been offered a plea bargain deal oh, wow. and they had refused it and rejected it. Um, so, so they chose, he chose to go through a jury trial with a judge sentencing. Okay. And, you know, I didn't know what to make of that. And I asked the attorneys, what does that mean? And why would somebody choose to do that? And um, they say that if the person believes that they're likely to be convicted, they'll choose a judge sentencing because judges are more lenient than juries mm -hmm. are. Mm -hmm. Because if a jury convicts you, a jury's more emotional. Mm -hmm. And um, so it takes a lot for a jury to convict. And so if a jury is convicting you, that means there's a lot of emotion behind that. Right. Well, and so a judge would probably be more lenient versus the jury. Yes, yes. And so, you know, our, our daughter and her, her friend, um, their testimony was powerful, detailed, mm. emotional, so emotional that during our daughter's testimony, the judge had to take a recess um, um, for himself and for the courtroom. Um, mm. And we were not in the courtroom. We were in a silent room um, because, again, we were witnesses, too, and we couldn't hear what she said. Um, but we were there to kind of catch her when she came out. And, um, and encourage her to use her voice. I mean, that, Nicole, is what I said to her. Use your voice. Your voice is your power. Use your voice. Now's your time. Use your voice. Take back your power. And, um, and she did. And Amazing. when we went in, we were all together for the jury. Um, and that was really hard. That's hard to be in there and hear the defense, um, their words to the jury, defending mm. the accuser, the, the accused person and twisting and creating doubt about what has happened. Um, but we did it. We sat in there. Um, her dad, it was so emotional for her dad. He had to walk out. But mm -hmm. I held her hand and stayed there with her the whole time. And, um, and the jury uh, came back. Within an hour, the jury came back with um, guilty. Mm -hmm. And um, that felt so good. Praise God. Such, yeah. such a validation for her. Mm -hmm. yes. um, it yes. was just such a validation for her. And uh, then we went into the next day, we went into sentencing and the judge sentenced him. He was facing um, 99 years um, um, sentence. Mm -hmm. The judge gave him 38 years with no parole. 
okay. which okay. is basically a life sentence because um, at his age, he will likely not live that long in prison okay. with these charges. Mm -hmm. Sure. And, um, and so it was wisdom on the judge's part because had a jury given him 99 years, it would have been another window for an appeal process mm. of that was, you know, a little bit unreasonable or, you know, given his age, you don't need to do 99 years or, you know, whatever I the see. excuse would have been. Mm -hmm. um, but again, having the judge give that was good. And so we read victim statements. Um, my daughter um, wrote her victim statement with um, her therapist. She wasn't sure about writing one and neither was her friend because they sort of felt like they had nothing to say to him. Um, and, but our therapist encouraged her, this will be the last thing that you ever say. And he needs to hear what he did and how it hurt you. Mm -hmm. And um, you need to say, you don't have to read it, but you need to write it and somebody can read it for you. And so one of the children's advocacy um, workers read it for her. And then I, I read mine as well. And, uh, you know, it was an emotional time because you've got his family and his supporters on one side of the courtroom um, upset. Um, and it was very controlled environment. You know, people weren't um, people weren't, you know, acting crazy um, yeah. like you see on TV sometimes. It was very controlled, um, but it was very emotional. Mm. And uh, she got to see him after he was found guilty. The next day when he came in for sentencing, he was shackled and in an orange jumpsuit. And that was also validating for her mm -hmm. to know yeah. that he would never hurt anybody else again, the way that he had hurt her and her friends. Mm -hmm. um, and so he was, he, was he then found guilty of abuse as well as trafficking children? They did not prosecute him for trafficking because the uh, main guy that had trafficked the girls was not living. They weren't able to bring that story into the courtroom um, okay. because he couldn't be cross-examined. And see. the district attorneys felt that it would be better for his charges to stand on what they could prove independently of the mm -hmm. other guy. I like see. just charge him for his crime, not his crime connected to the other guy, mm -hmm. because it would um, muddy the case and it would give the defense a way to say, well, this is really all the other guy's fault. And, you know, maybe maybe this didn't really happen or whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and again, you know, when we went through that process and they told us this is what we're going to do, this is what we're not going to do. We're like, what? I mean, you know, it didn't make it didn't make a lot of sense to us, but we had to trust the process and we had to believe that um, that they knew what they were doing. And yeah. apparently after the trial is over, the jury gets to meet with the prosecutor and the defense attorney. And the defense attorney and the prosecutor get to answer whatever questions that the jury has, which I didn't know that happened hmm. either. And yeah. the jury, the, the defense attorney and the prosecutor get to do that because they get to learn how to do better for the next case. That's right. um, but the jury gets and the jury asks what the heck, you know, where's this other guy? Why is he not in court? Because there was a mention to him, but it had to be stricken from the record. Mm -hmm. um, and so then they, the attorneys could explain the whole thing um, of mm -hmm. what had happened. So a couple of the jurors chose to come back the next day for sentencing. And when I saw them, oh, <laughs> I just went up and hugged them and <laughs> thanked them so much for, for, for what they did. Um, yeah. Because they... They made yeah. a big difference in um, 
in our lives that day. And, mm-hmm. um, and I wanted them to know how much we appreciated it. Yeah. And for you to even say, you know, that you had to, a lot of it was confusing and you didn't feel like, you know, they were making the right decision or why are you leaving this out? Like how much I hear that from so many victims and victims' families and the process and the justice system can seem so messed up. But to hear you say that you walked this out from day one to day 1,000 and you felt like now you look back and you understand why they did it this way or why they had to go through this or why it was this long and you understand it, that really gives me a lot of hope. And it helps me to want to continue to advocate for those who do want to seek justice because sometimes it does work out and sometimes it does make sense. You know, that's really, really encouraging. Laura, what state um, did you go through this process in? In Texas. Oh, in Texas. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Wow. So this closed the chapter when it came to that whole three-year process, right? And I'm guessing your daughter and you maybe also um, continued therapy and, you know, she's finishing school, you know, kind of walk us through what the aftermath looks like because that can be so much stress, so much energy all crammed in. And then suddenly you get basically what you were hoping for. And then, but life doesn't just go on, you know, like there's still, you know, I talk about healing's lifelong. There's, there's a lot that you still have to deal with in the aftermath. So how did that look for you too? And are you still close? Oh my goodness. We're super close. That's She's awesome. my hero. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'm, sure I, I'm so, I'm so, uh, you know, I love, love her so much and mm-hmm. I'm so proud of her. And, uh, she supports me in the decisions that I've made to speak out about this. And she, uh, so after it, I mean, immediately the day after the conviction and the sentencing had happened, um, I remember we went shopping, it was close to Christmas and I was helping her pick out some Christmas gifts for friends. And she picked out a blouse that had flowers all over it. Mm-hmm. And this child had not worn anything with flowers for like five years. <laughs> and, um, it had just been pretty much black and gray was like her go-to colors for a long time. And so when she picked out something with flowers and we went to dinner with the family that night, um, they were like, did mom pick that out for you and make (laughs) you wear that? She's like, no, I picked this out. (laughs) And uh, the big smile on her face and the beautiful colors that she added to her wardrobe um, were a visible sign of the healing and the the clouds parting and the rainbow that was coming through in her life. Mm -hmm. Um, She closed that door, closed that chapter. Um, We reconciled with that family. Um, We visited that family. We got to spend time with that little girl that my daughter was fighting so hard to protect. we are a part of their lives now. Uh, that wow. mom and I, we love each other and support each other and get each other in a way that nobody else will ever. Um, yeah. uh, I, I led a fundraising initiative to reopen the case of her son that she lost during this you know, process. Um, and, and she and I are, are just really, really there for one another as as uh, as moms and there for these children. Um, and, you know, 
for me, there was a moment after everything happened and, you know, my daughter was in school in college classes and living independently on her, her own and doing well and continuing with therapy. Um, for me, it sort of all hit me and I had to take a moment. I had to be very self-aware, get a little bit of the therapy and help do some painting, do some things that gave me a chance to heal. And, um, and in coming out of that, I decided to uh, become a, um, an authorized, certified uh, facilitator, trainer on children's sexual abuse prevention through a great organization, Darkness to Light. Um, Darkness to Light organization uh, has been doing this over 20 years, providing resources. And I had found them in my search, uh, like I'd found you, Nicole, for just help me with information because I didn't want to badger my daughter with questions, but I needed information to understand what this world was that we were in and yeah. um, how, how could I, what, what was she feeling and how could I support mm. her and what could I do? And um, thank and you for not going to her to teach yeah. you those things. Thank you for going outside of her to educate yourself um, before you come to her. Again, that's such such a good lesson for those who want to support a survivor. I mean, it even goes into this whole systemic racism we're talking about. Don't go to the people of color to teach you. Go figure it out yourself. (laughs) You know, that's such a good teaching tool for so many parents. Thank you for being that kind of mom. So yeah, so you're, you're learning, you went to darkness to light. That's very powerful. Yep. I became a certified uh, trainer to help other adults understand um, how to recognize. Um, I learned a lot of things through this Mm -hmm. of things I missed. Um, Mm -hmm. I learned to forgive myself and that's something, you know, forgiveness is not an emotion. Um, The same way as I feel about the abusers, you know, um, Mm -hmm. I don't feel like forgiving them. And if I ever expect to feel it, it won't ever happen. It's a decision and a choice that I make that their actions will not continue to control our life. And um, it's a decision. Forgiveness is a decision, not an emotion. Mm-hmm. And so, so I also began a blog, um, just pulling together resources, sharing our story primarily to serve and support other parents who, who don't know, what do I do? Um, you know, how do I handle this? Where do I go? And that's, that's what, that's what I spend a lot of time on these days. And And please uh, share what that blog is. So our listeners can go check that out. It's learnfromherstory.com. Learnfromherstory.com. Great. And, uh, and yeah, so we, uh, you know, she's finished her associate's degree in college in lightning speed and, uh, she is thriving. She's working, she's happy. Um, she, you know, she just is doing great. And the rest of the family is doing really well too, because you go through it as a family, you know, her sisters and her brother, um, all of us, you know, we went through it all together and me as a parent, making sure that I was in touch with how they were feeling about everything and what they were observing that was going on um, was something that I had to make sure I knew how to do too and uh, did my best with. Um, and, I, and I choose to forgive myself. Um, like I said, I think the reason that most parents don't want to accept that this has happened when they hear about it is because it immediately sends a signal of failure. Um, you failed as a parent. I mean, mm-hmm. your one job is to protect them and you failed. And they don't want to experience that or feel yeah. that. 
And the, the, you know, it's not about that. It's not about who's right or wrong or who failed or who didn't fail. What it's about is we know now. And all you can do is do with what you know now. And what you know now, you can do better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what you didn't know, you, you can't be responsible for. But mm-hmm. um, what you know now, you can do better. Yeah. That's, that's really good. Yeah. And just, I know you've talked before about, um, you know, creating conversations with your kids. And, you know, again, you can't change the past, but today moving forward, you know, listening, asking questions, what are they not saying? You even had written, I think either in an email to me or in a blog about how you're not going to ask your kids or your grandkids when they're gone and away from you, were you good? You'll ask them, did you feel safe? Did you feel comfortable? I think those are really good little things that we can do um, to create conversation and to let kids know that, you know, you've got their back. Exactly. And, and, and your podcast has been such a great resource for me too, during Mm. this time where I could listen to how other survivors felt and what they went through and I could learn. And I'm pretty sure I picked that up from one of your podcasts, Mm. um, to understand that, um, that, you know, what, what, cause I mean, I asked that question a million times and yeah. the, 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 she was so confused because, you know, <laughs> she thought good was obeying the person in authority exactly. and the person that, that, that they loved her and yeah. that they cared for her and mm-hmm. she didn't understand. And of course, when she was old enough to understand, he twisted it into being, well, you're the one that did it wrong. You know, it's your fault and mm-hmm. I'm not going to get in trouble. You're going to get in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, it's a, um, it's an ugly world. And, and I'm, I'm just uh, thankful that, that so many different from the police to the children's advocacy, to the nurse, to the guidance counselor, to my daughter's friend who first told us about her suicide plan. And I'm just so thankful that we were surrounded by angels and that, that we can be an angel to somebody else yeah. and we can be there and stick up for somebody else. Well, you've certainly done that today, Laura, and just all that you've shared, the insights, the personal story. It's, it, I know it's going to help a lot of people and I'm really grateful for your courage, grateful for your daughter's willingness to allow you to share her story in this way. That's very brave of her. And I know she's doing some amazing things in her life. I wanted to sort of end with um, something that you had written as well. That I thought was just really well said. And I think, Um, everyone needs to hear it. You said, Laura, I believe firmly to end child sexual abuse should not rely solely on the courage of a child. You said, we as adults must wake up and stand up and send a message to abusers that this will not be tolerated. And I think that's really true. And I'm, I'm just so glad that your voice is out there as a mom of a victim and now survivor that you've walked through this whole thing with her and you can honestly say it was worth it and that you can be bold. You're a warrior in this fight, um, bringing darkness to light when it comes to sexual abuse. So thank you so much, Laura, for your time and your story today. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe, write a review if you heard something you liked, even invite others to listen so we can be on this healing journey together. You can check us out on Facebook or go to IamOneVoice.org. 